Podcast One. Today's guest is the founder of Holster Fashion and the creator of the iconic Jelly Sandal. Well, it's iconic in the minds of young girls, of which I'm guessing there aren't that many listening. That said, if the idea of creating something iconic in your business appeals, then you're in for a real treat. It's a shoe-in episode 507 of the award-winning small business big marketing podcast. Well, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show, a successful small business owners share their souls to take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Tim And welcome back to your weekly dose of vegan-friendly marketing. <laughs> That'll make sense in a minute, I promise. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You, infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that is exactly what we do around here. Plus, you can join for free our Facebook group to discuss the learnings from each episode with myself and others just like you. Just search for the Small Business Big Marketing Tribe on Facebook. Guess what? Big episode today. We meet the great, great, great grandson of retailing giant David Jones, who's gone on to create his own little retail empire. This week's Monster Prize Draw winner is listening and taking action like there's no tomorrow. And I let you in on next week's guest, who's popping up all over the place. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. In 2001, Ben Nuthling and his wife Natalie began crafting a range of what they called jelly sandals. 20 years on... And their jelly design has become iconic, having sold hundreds of thousands of pairs around the world. Their business, called Holster Fashion, has morphed into a fully-fledged line of, wait for it, vegan-friendly, trans-seasonal, cruelty-free footwear for women and children, boasting 2,000 stockists in 25 countries. Now, in this broad-ranging chat, we cover where the idea for Holster came from and for the Jelly Sandal, for that matter. We talk about growth strategies, how to manage working with your partner, celebrity endorsement, and plenty more business insights are going to come your way. I started off by asking Ben what influence, if any, his great-great-great-grandfather had on his decision to go into retail. Oh, well, I always knew that he was a bit of a legend setting up the department stores there, DJs. Uh, but it didn't really influence me in a way. We, My wife and I just saw an opportunity with business and making shoes and we sort of just fell into the business and went from there and it just progressed. So, you know, obviously he inspires myself and my wife and what he did. And you look at the business now. So... Yeah, we just got into Holster and, and realised we were good at marketing, selling shoes, distributing stock. 2001, you start Holster. What led to it? Did you come across a particular design that you loved? Had you, were you, are you a shoe guy prior to that? No, not at all. I had finished uni doing a business marketing degree and I went to Indonesia on a, a surf trip and then Natalie 
who was my part, you know, I just met her actually. She came over and met me towards the end of my trip and I met a friend in Indonesia and for the first time I just met him. He was in the hut next to me at a surf break called Lakey Peak and he said to me, oh, he, he lived on the Gold Coast. He said, oh, I'm, I'm importing board shorts from Bali and I'm selling them to surf shops. And I'd just finished uni and I didn't really want to go and work for another business. I was sort of thinking about what I could do to set up my own business. And I thought, wow, there's opportunity over here. Back then, not as many people were going to Bali and we saw opportunity with different products and, and imported, you know, some fashion items uh, like clothes, footwear, belts. I even imported some surfboard bags because I love surfing. And the shoes really took off and the fashion belts. And that's sort of how we got into the business. And, you know, we we're selling to one shop and then it suddenly became 50, then 100, then 200. And it just sort of grew from there. What was it about the shoes? Was it, was it a shoe that you designed or you just came across in a shop and thought, I'll import those into Australia? No, it was the Balinese make really beautiful handcrafted sandals. And my wife saw these sandals and she said, oh, wow, they look nice. We could sell sell those sort of sandals. And then she played around with the, the beading and whatnot on the upper of the shoe. And we brought them in and they sold really well. And they just kept selling out. And we were air freighting them in. We couldn't get them in fast enough because every time shops got them, they'd sell out. And there was no e-commerce back then. It was all just, you'd just go and sell to brick and mortar retailers. And yeah, they just kept selling. And then, so we started making more designs and it just grew from there. And then we started producing the jelly footwear. And that's when things really took off for us because they were very unique. No one else was doing jelly shoes with, um, like we were putting crystals and diamantes and all sorts of things on them. And they, yeah, they just took off. And then we had distributors in the UK. Uh, New Zealand, Japan, all, from all different countries saying, oh, we want to sell your shoes in our country. And yeah, it just took off really quickly from there. So, but it was, you know, having a u- very unique product that is different to what other people do. Like I see a lot of footwear and, you know, it all sort of looks the same from one brand to the other. You've got to have your own DNA that looks very, it's just unique to your brand and, you know, it attracts a certain customer. Tell us about that because you, you ended up with the jelly shoe, quite an iconic design or has, has become that. Uh, but prior to that, you're just selling, you're importing shoes from Bali, you're making a quid, you, you've got a good eye for what's going to sell in Australia. Just describe, because this is a podcast, we don't see the jelly shoe. I think once people, would, once people saw it, they go, oh, I know that one. I remember that one. How, how did it come around? So, yeah, the jelly shoe is, is well, it's technically... Uh, made from plastic PVC, so not jelly. No, not jelly. But it looks like <laughs> jelly. That's how it got the name jelly because they make a lot of them in a transparent colour, like jelly. So it got nicknamed the jelly shoe, which suits it really well. So the beauty of the jelly shoe is it's made in in a, a mould, which is a big steel block, and your design of your shoe is actually etched out into the mould by a mould maker. So he makes your mould and you have to make a mould for every shoe size, right and left side. So it's a quite a big undertaking. It's actually a, a very big investment as well. It, it doesn't cost, you know, $1,000. A shoe design for that can cost up to ten to 15000 US a design to have all your sizes rolled out. 
So in that way, it's good as well because when you roll out your design of your shoe, you know if someone copies you, they're going to have to invest a lot of money. So, yeah, the jelly shoe, you know, it's, it can be transparent, clear. It can be a beautiful black. The colours look amazing. Every shoe, you could pump a million pairs out of one design and because it's made in a, in a mould, it's an engineered shoe. So every shoe is just identical. So, yeah, very, very unique. And then you suggested you started adding things. You mentioned crystals or what, what were you adding to them? In, into the mould? No, so generally the jelly shoe is just a, you know, just a, a simple jelly shoe. A lot of little girls would remember wearing a pair of jelly shoes growing up like it's called, like it's got a little cage type design over the top of the foot. They call it the fisherman jelly shoe. So we, we started making sandals and thongs with it and we would put jewels on the straps of the sandals and thongs, which was very different. No one had done that and that's when things really took off for us because it just it was unique. You know, everyone says Holster set the global trend for the Diamante jelly sandal. <laughs> Must get a pair. Uh, these, these, these things that you're attaching to them, are they attachments or are they actually built in? No, attached. Atta- atta- so we have to put holes in the moulds and then you feed the, um, the leg of the, the crystal through it and you, you press it on the other side so it's secure and it doesn't fall out. So, so, yeah, they are attached. So you inject the shoe and then you attach the jewels after. Then you put the shoes in the shoebox. Because what's, what I'm interested in, is, is this a bit of a hardware software model? Because I know Crocs have got those. I, I can't remember what they're called, but you can buy things that you can attach yeah. to Crocs. It's, it's like the same thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so same thing. All of ours have it where Crocs have done it on a handful. Crocs is actually made in a mould as well. That's EVA injection. So that footwear is made in a, in a, a mould, comes out. It's a one-piece shoe. They have started adding crystals to it, all sorts of things. So... Just, it just makes it a bit different, a bit more unique to your brand by adding those those types of things. Does that mean that you, and, and it's a bit like the Pandora bracelet model where you sell the bracelet, you're selling the shoe, and then you've got to keep coming back or you can choose to keep coming back and buying additional bits for it. So there's this whole new revenue stream, right? We don't overprice our shoes, so we sort of try and hit hit that middle price point so that shoes turn over quickly. We don't overprice them, make, make them too expensive. So people come back and just keep buying more and more sandals from us rather than the crystals we actually, if someone wants to change them, that's quite difficult on our shoe because of the way we press them in because, yeah, we don't want them falling out and, and, you know, you're having quality issues. So ours are pressed in by machine, so they're really secure. Am I right in you saying that you promote these as 100% vegan Shoes? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent vegan friendly. There's no, I love that. no animal products used in the shoes. So um, a, a lot of people don't know this, but the, a lot of the glues used to make footwear have animal byproducts in these glues. So people can say, "Oh, that shoe is vegan," but you know they've got to analyse the glue. So we we get all our uh, material checked and tested by the Vegan Society in the UK. And they check and sign off on it all and approve it and then say, yeah, all that footwear is certified as using vegan-friendly materials. So, yeah, we do that with all our footwear. 
how is the business growing? You're, you're almost, uh, what is it, 2000, when did you start? 2001. So you're, you're 19 years old. Yeah. You've, early days, you've come across the jelly shoe. That's been your bread and butter, I guess, and, and a staple iconic design. It has. How have you continued to innovate and keep the business, you know, front and centre and interesting to your customer? Oh, we've added like sneakers. We do a lot of sneakers now and they've been really popular. Uh, we added children's shoes children's jellies, children's sneakers, but we continue to keep innovating with our jelly shoes. Like every year we'll come up with new designs or we'll add new crystals to them or we're just innovating. You add different components to the shoe or you know something worked five years ago, oh, that worked really well, let's reinvent that and change it a little bit and put a twist on it and put it back on just so the customer is engaged when they see your new shoes and they want to purchase them again. So that's very important to keep evolving as, as your brand grows. You have to still stick to your DNA. You, you can't totally change that. Like, you know, look at Crocs. They, they still sell that clog that they launched years ago. And, you know, it's probably still one of their best-selling shoes, but they've added other shoes to their to their line. What do you mean stick to your DNA? Just explain that a bit more. Well, I would say... Holster's DNA is uh, like a, a jeweled sandal or a jeweled thong. That's that's what women come to us for, and so we say that is our DNA, or you know, the bread and butter of, of our sales come from our DNA products, our core products. And you'd never change that. No, you don't want to, but you try new things too. Like we've tried to do various different products, brought them in. Let's test this. They don't work, so we don't. We don't. You know. We don't run with that again. We, we just think of another idea to add here or there with the footwear. And yeah, so you just keep reinventing and trying new things. Some work, some don't, but you stick to your core product. What's the testing product process look like, Ben? Do you, you create one and then do a few research groups or do you actually create a large quantity and see whether they sell through? Like obviously we'll make prototype samples and then people wear test them and you know, we check the durability, comfort, you know, then you obviously got to look at price. How is it going to be priced in the market? And if all that looks good and, you know, obviously we get feedback from our team, see what they all think. Do we think this shoe will, will sell? Will the holster woman like it? Most people agree. Then we'll bring in like a small batch of it and test it. And if it does really well, bang, you add more. If it doesn't do well, yeah, probably push it aside and look for something new. So when we actually launched sneakers, oh, it's probably four or five years ago now, we could see the sneaker trend was really ramping up. One of our suppliers, we said, you know, we, we want to make sneakers. So we developed two sneakers, brought them in. They were received really, really well, sold out quickly. So then, bang, we've added a lot more sneakers to the brand. And now we're carrying a lot of sneakers. And, and they, they actually all sell really well. So that's an example of something doing really well. You know, we've tried to do other shoes. Like we actually tried to do a, a lady's jelly shoe in a ballerina shape. So it's like a, the ballerina jelly. It didn't do well in the Western markets, like, say, Australia, America, those sort of places. But in the Asia market, it did really well. So we keep selling that there in Asia, but we don't sell it again in Australia. We push it aside and we run the sneakers. 
tell us about a moment when you or your wife have come up with the idea of a lifetime for a shoe where you've just gone, this is a ripper. This is going to take over the world and you've produced a prototype and it's fallen flat on its face. <laughs> oh, it's happened a few times. But uh, more often than not, we, we get it right. Maybe like trying new materials on shoes. Like we might say, oh, that's going to be a winner and we'll test a new material and and then you'll try and get it to the market and it just, yeah, falls flat on its face and you've just got to push it aside. <laughs> you know, you thought it was going to do well. So sometimes you just don't know. And then other times there'll be a dark horse where you'll arm an R over it and you'll put it in and test it and it just does phenomenally well. So normally you'll know it's going to, if a shoe's going to, take off but sometimes there is a dark horse so and then sometimes there's the one that catches you by surprise and doesn't take off at all do you find yourself walking along the street looking at people's shoes and every now and then getting busted by someone saying mate why are you looking down at my feet i haven't been busted but my wife and i always look at people's shoes so you know we're shoe dogs that's what we do we make shoes. <laughs> shoe dogs <laughs> so what you call yourselves shoe dogs the shoe dogs yeah <laughs> definitely I love that <laughs> No, you do, mate. You always look at because you always get ideas from looking at people's shoes and looking at different brand shoes. And you know, I always find myself in an airport when, say, I'm in I don't know Singapore or something or Bangkok, waiting for a flight, and I walk through and I look at all, go into all the the shops, you know, the designer shops, and I look at all their shoes, all of them, and you just get an idea from one little thing, or you know, you'll see the way they. Assemble a shoe. I know how it's all done, so I can I can see this, and I'll say, "Oh wow, look at that! We could we could adapt that to a jelly shoe." Or yeah, it's just by looking at them, you you that's where you get your your ideas, and and then also you know look at Instagram's good. You see a lot of shoes there. But general, probably the best selling shoe we've ever sold a sandal. It's called the Supermodel Jelly Sandal. We've probably had it in our range for twelve years. And we get repeat orders on it regularly. Every time we bring it in, it sells really, really well. So that's actually one um, my wife just sketched on a piece of paper and then just got the idea and then we cut out the prototype of it and test it. Then we opened the mould and it became a jelly shoe. And we actually have sold so many of that um, of that mould that we had to after you after you produce so many pairs of a shoe through a, a mold, a footwear mold, after years of use, you have to actually scrap that mold and re and reopen a new one so it's fresh. So because the the mold, you know, if it's over overused, the quality won't be as good. Yeah, so that's probably the best one we've ever ever produced. Do you have a name for every shoe? You mentioned the supermodel jelly. Is every different shoe got a name? Yeah. Because I just want to be a part of that. I want to be part of that naming yeah. group going forward. You got the supermodel jelly. You got the paradise jelly. You got the masquerade jelly. <laughs> the holiday jelly. There's a name for all of them, mate. You got the shoe dog jelly? No, but actually that's a good idea. We'll have to uh, throw that in the mix. Just humour me here for a minute, Ben. I look at some of these sneakers my kids buy, you know, pair of sneakers from Nike. And then I walk past those fancy shops like in Singapore Airport where I can't even think of the brands right now. Is it Borley or Belly or... All those brands, they're expensive. Are they as equally as expensive to manufacture or is there just massive margins on them? Massive margins. Really? Massive. 
Yeah, yeah. It's all bloody marketing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. No, it is, mate. You know, those like Nikes and Adidas, those, you know, the sports sneakers, they make such big quantities of them in very big factories, economy of scale. So, you know, the prices aren't ridiculously expensive to purchase from the factory. It's just the marketing costs. That, that push that retail price so high. Just, I don't, you might not know this because you don't work for Nike or any of those fancy brands, but like a pair of shoes, like a stand, um, what, what's an example? Let's say there's a $500 pair of shoes at some fancy fashion shop. What's the cost of making that shoe? Uh, maybe if it's, say, a, like a, a leather heel with crystals on it or something, maybe if it's made in Italy, oh, I don't know, it could be in US dollars, maybe. 60, 50 US or something, something like that. Uh, big margins. Well, they've still got to get it to the shelf, but big margins. Yeah, then, then you got then you got shipping, you know, on top and then you may have import tariffs and, and those sorts of things. So, But the sh- shipping for one pair of shoes generally by sea in a shoebox from Asia to pretty much most countries would be about one, maybe one US dollar a pair you, you'd add on for shipping. And then every country's got different import tariffs. Back to Holster, Ben, you have got, uh, it's an online business. You wholesale to retailers around the place. Yeah. You have got a store, a Holster store in Noosa, which is where the business is based. And you've got 25 Holster branded stores in Bangkok. Is that the kind of the, the entirety of how the shoe is sold across those different platforms? Yeah, correct. So online, obviously. How did Bangkok come around? Uh, our Thai distributor saw our shoes in a department store in Indonesia and liked the look of them. And she contacted us through our website and said that she would like to distribute Holster in, in Bangkok. And yeah, just sort of went from there. So yeah, it was just seeing the product in another country, in another store. And they also have a good online business. And they also sell some shoes in the tourist locations like Phuket in department stores down there. So the Thai distributor saw our shoes in a department store in Indonesia and she loved the look of them and thought that they would do very well in, in their market. And she was correct. The, the holster shoes do do re- very well in Thailand. A lot of the um, university students have adopted the holster jelly sandals as their university uniform. So that supermodel jelly I was telling you about before, that's one of the, the winners in Thailand. That's awesome. It sells really, really well. Yeah, the girls love it. Like the Doc Martens of Thailand. Yeah, it must be. Like when you when you <laughs> when you go to Bangkok and you're on those the sky trains and you're going through the, the different, you know, the stations there, going to the different department stores, because we go and have a look at the, the holster shops and it's easier to go on the train. And you look down and you just see lots of girls wearing the, the holster sandals. You can see them sparkling. They love, they love the bling. So it's, it's quite amazing. And then when you walk through the department stores, you see them as well wearing the holster. Ben, you've had a lot of growth and I'm imagining marketing's played a decent role in, in getting to where you are today. Is there any particular marketing that's helped you build the brand besides a great product? Um, you know, we've marketed holster around where we're from here. Noosa Beach, Australia. You know, I don't really attribute that to the success. You, your product is what people come to you for your product. But we, yeah, that it does help. You know, we market holster. It's that sort of coastal Queensland beach girl. It's in our shoots. Um, you know, so you push that through your 
your social media. You know, it's you know, it's all over our website and our distributors' websites. We don't really do any print advertising anywhere anymore. We we used to do it, and our distributors did, but we've all just gone towards digital. You know, social media and Google uh, is sort of where it's at. So yeah, sort of steering away from print now. Yeah, obviously it's it's your product. Um, having the unique product, but you do have to have good marketing to go with it. And, you know, we've always prided ourselves on doing some really nice photo shoots and we have to create a lot of content now on social media. So you've got to have a lot of a huge database every month of all your, all your new shoes, whether it's a, a girl wearing them or it's, it's just a photo of the shoes with, with her feet in them. Then you've also got to have great photos on your, your website for, the product because a lot of people shop online. So, you know, it's a mixture of all of that, mate, and also building up your following. So I think with our Facebook following, we've got maybe 370,000 followers worldwide. And then Instagram, we've got a pretty solid following on our Instagram as well. You've had some success with celebrity endorsement, Kylie Minogue, Danny Minogue. How'd that come about? So, yeah, we did a, a jelly shoe with Danny. And um, she obviously gave Kylie some pairs and Kylie was enjoying wearing them. And, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, Danny Minogue holster jelly. It was called the rock star jelly. You'll like that one. Of course it was. Should have been the pops. Should have been pop star, not rock star. <laughs> no, we called it the rock star because it had studs on it. It looked sort of rock starish. <laughs> and Danny loved the name too. So, it, it, yeah, it fitted well. Nice. Uh, we did about, fifth, I think we did 15 colours in that sandal. And we sold, yeah, we sold a lot of them. It was, yeah, it was very successful. So that, you know, that also helps too, having a famous people endorse your product. So Was that a paid endorsement or she just happened to put them on one day and shared a photo on social? No, no, we, we, she was paid. It was, she was part of the campaign of that, that one shoot. Jeez, mate, you must've been rolling in the dough back then. What was that, 1984? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, that was about six years ago, I think, off the top of my head. Um, but, yeah, we did a photo shoot for it. It was a whole day shoot. We did videos. We got a lot of photos. Um, and we promoted it a lot. And Danny flushed it through her social channels as well. And, yeah, it was it was very successful, that shoot. I'd love you to tell us what you paid her. Feel free to. I understand if you can't say that, but I'm also, <laughs> but, but I ask that A, because I'm just curious, but I'm also particularly interested in can you quantify the success of paying her what I'm sure was a fairly large amount of dough? Yeah, I can't really say what it was uh, worth, but yeah, it was, a, a, you know, it was a good amount of, of money. You know, it does bring a lot of awareness to your brand and obviously. You know, they've got big followings, the celebrities. So, you know, a lot of people, if they're posting about those shoes all the time, a lot of people are going to be going to your website, looking at them, wanting to buy them or finding out where they can buy them in the shop. So you'd do it again? Yeah, yeah, we yeah we would. Um, we've used former Miss Universes as well, but we've sort of just used them in photo shoots. So we didn't actually name any shoes after them. In, say, Thailand, for example, we, you know, we've gifted a lot of shoes there to famous Thai celebs and and some of them with like, you know, a million followers on Instagram and, you know, they'll flush photos through their, through their accounts and then suddenly you'll see the Instagram following grow with a lot of, you know, new girls following 
that obviously follow this celeb and they feed off that and it works works really well. Uh, I've got an idea. I don't know whether let's, I'll, I'll put it to you. I won't hold back. It's called the Jelly Podcaster. Uh, it's got golden mics embedded into the into the plastic. Um, <laughs> I'd be happy to. I mean, it have to be a men's kind of style, uh, size eleven. <laughs> mm, yeah, oh. no, just laughing. Okay, nothing. Okay, we'll de- we'll develop that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he says with his arms and legs crossed. Uh, I'm going to get you into trouble here, Ben. You work with your wife, Natalie. You've grown the business since day one with your wife, Natalie. Upsides of working alongside your wife's, your wife's, your wife and downside. (laughs) Natalie and I have actually worked together pretty much the whole time we've known each other. So it's nothing new. So in that way, we're lucky we've always worked together. Yeah, the upside is that you share successes together. The downside is you would share the tough times together with it. Uh, probably a tip is if you're good at certain parts of the business, you focus on that and then you, Natalie's great at certain things. She focuses on that. So you have your areas and you split them, but then you still discuss them together a- a- that way. So there's less, I suppose it'd be you know, less conflict. Like I know she's great at, for example, designing great shoes and and making them come to life so i just trust her with that so yeah you're good at that i'll give her some feedback but i know that she she will make the final decision so yeah i think it's good to sort of split what you're doing you are based on the sunshine coast i imagine that's a lifestyle decision because it would probably be a cheaper business to run if you're in a major commercial center somewhere in brisbane or melbourne or sydney yeah, it would be cheaper in a way, but then also it's more expensive because getting your products from Brisbane Wharf up here by semi-trailers costs a lot more than, say, where you had a warehouse in Brisbane or Sydney near near the big port and you just bring your stock in there and be unloaded much much faster, cost less to get it there. Then also our freight for our online business, sending it out of, say, Noosa, to various parts around Australia and also sending stock to shops costs us more from here rather than if you're in Sydney, you're going to get cheaper rates with your your freight companies. So in that way, it is more expensive, but then in other ways, rents might be a bit cheaper, that sort of stuff here. But yeah, we live here for the lifestyle. It's great. We couldn't live in a city, you know, and maybe we could probably make more money having the brand in a city and being more in the spotlight, but we just love living here and it's a great spot for our kids to grow up, you know, on the coast. How's the business been affected by COVID-19, Ben? Oh, it was, yeah, tough when it first hit. Like, for example, all the shops we supply around Australia said that, you know, they're temporarily closing, so there was no stock going out to shops. Our online business has been ticking away nicely because people can still shop online. Our brick-and-mortar shop in Noosa, yeah, that slowed right off. So we kept it open, but no one was out. And then our sales overseas to our distributors, that all our production was sort of suspended or just people waiting to see what happened with COVID-19. And then, you know, now we're just starting to get production rolling again. So, yeah, it was, it was definitely, you know, a bit stressful there for a bit, but I knew it would blow over and... We had to take measures at the time to protect the business and just to keep it rolling. And yeah, you know, this will blow over and 
be a distant memory one day, won't it? That's it. Ben, great story. Uh, thanks for making the time to share it, buddy. And um, once we finish, I'll leave you my address for the uh, the Jelly Podcaster to be sent to. <laughs> no problem. I'll need a mould of your foot, so you'll have to drop into the office. <laughs> for your big mould. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> love it. Well, there you go, team. Holster Fashions, Ben Nuthling. Here's what grabbed my attention from that chat. Attention grab at number one. Ben's advice on having a unique product is interesting, to say the least. They were lucky enough to create something unique in their jelly sandal, but it's not always easy to come up with a clear point of difference in business, especially in a product business these days. That said, you still can create a point of difference in your customer service offering. And that's a great area to explore in your business. Take a listen to episode 433 to hear how an electrician did that. One of my most downloaded episodes, that one. Attention grabber number two. I love Ben's advice about sticking to your brand's DNA. Now, it would have been easy enough for Ben to go beyond shoes and expand the brand into other categories, but instead he's remained laser focused and success has clearly followed. Attention grabber number three, I love how a brand of holster size went out and got Danny and Kylie Minogue to endorse their product. Brave, some would say silly, but has proved very successful for them. Have a listen to episode 449 uh, if you're wanting to do that celebrity endorsement and you are a smaller business with a limited budget because I talked to ex-AFL legend Matthew Pavlich, whose business Pickstar enables businesses of any size to seek celebrity endorsement. Very clever little idea there. I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, that's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, be sure to block out some time and implement it. Come on down. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. It's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. And today's winner is Rob Roper of RoperTutoringCo.com. And this is what young Rob has to say. Well, actually, I don't know his age, but, you know, young at heart at the very least. He says, Timbo, you're an absolute machine. I love that. My name is Rob Roper and I'm the director and founder of Roper Tutoring Company. We provide small group tutoring to students from year one to 12 in the Perth Hills. Now, what have I applied from your show? Well, so many strategies from Cham Tang's episode on how to increase the engagement of my Facebook ads, both organically and paid. That was gold. Loz and Lex from Will and Bear, they were the hat makers, that was a great chat, taught me how to differentiate my Instagram stories from Instagram posts, giving my audience insight into me as a person and building that authentic relationship. I love that. That's a great, you know, even tutoring business can do something like that. I love it. And Julie Mathers from Flora and Fauna reminded me of the importance of building a culture with my staff. Oh, and your episode with Cooper Silk from Radio Hub taught me so many valuable lessons for starting a podcast, particularly around delivering a set of questions to our guests before recording to make sure they understand the quality we are trying to produce. Timbo, you epitomise best practice, so thank you in your dedication. (laughs) I added that line. 
No, I didn't. No, I didn't. He wrote it. I, I'll send you a photo if you don't believe me. Appreciate everything. Rob Roper, ropertutoringco.com. Rob, I appreciate you, mate. Thank you for listening. And more importantly, thank you for implementing and seeing great results. For that, you win a range of Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits, a hardcover of Jamie Mustard's book, a Bonjoro license. You get vouchers from Sendall, Flora and Fauna and Tradies. You get some Mr. Lee's noodles. You get promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes. Google will love you for that. Everyone else, if you want to enter the Monster Prize draw, just send me one idea, 100 words or less, in an email Tell me one idea you've implemented from listening to the show, what impact it's had on your business. Send it to tim at timreed.com.au. If I read it out on air, you win. Well, how'd you enjoy that? Episode 507. If you want to drop me a line, like, and tell me how you enjoyed it, or maybe you didn't, go to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 507 and leave a comment. There's plenty more where this came from on the podcast One Australia app. Plus, you'll find my entire archive of episodes and blog posts over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Now, next time around, you and I are going to catch up with cosmetic pop-up store expert Michelle Young, who not only shares how she's built a little pop-up empire, but also how she believes the pop-up strategy is ideal for many other businesses including those of you in the service industry. So a little bit of a mind-expanding chat next time around. If you're getting value from listening, I'd love you to let other business owners know about this podcast, which was presented by me, Timbo Reid, and cleverly put together by the Rough and Ready team at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. Now get out there and take action. <laughs>